Good morning. Let us open our Bibles to Galatians chapter 6. Actually, 4. Let's do 4. Let me change the plans a little bit. Galatians chapter 4. Verses 4 through 7. This is our second sermon, focusing on verses 6 and 7, but for context, let me read 4 through 7. God's word reads, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. We are considering life after Christmas. I mentioned before, Christmas did not take place to become a seasonal celebration, but in order to change the world. If the entrance of sin into the world brought drastic changes to the world, in that it immediately brought resentment in Cain, leading to the murder of Abel, then the entrance of a sinless human being into this world also brought something new. After all, the birth of Jesus took place when? In the fullness of time. Jesus came to begin the reversal of what took place in the Garden of Eden. And the central point of connection is this. Jesus did what he did in order to share with us what is now his, namely, heavenly life. Because he now has authority over what? Heaven and earth. In Jesus, we can begin to enjoy heavenly life even as we are still earthly creatures. Hence the song of the heavenly host during the first Christmas night as they contemplated baby, the, the God's son wrapped in human flesh, they could begin to join what was once separated. On the one hand, they could say glory to God where? In the highest. And on the other hand, they could also say, and on earth, what? Peace. In Jesus, an earthly and heavenly reunion was beginning to take place. In this sense, Jesus is the faithful Son of God who came to fulfill the role that Israel had failed to fulfill. Israel, as God's firstborn son, was called to worship the true God and also to invite others to come and do the same, meaning Israel was set apart to worship and to be a kingdom of priests. Hence God's word in reference to Israel. He said to Pharaoh, let my son go that he might serve me. All of which prompted the exodus. Israel was called to be God's firstborn son in order to be a light to whom? The nations. Because they were, the nations were full of darkness. So Israel was called to be God's firstborn son in order to be a light for the nations, but they themselves became full of darkness. They were set apart to be God's firstborn son in order to become a kingdom of priests, and yet they became a group of rebels. 
Jesus, however, came as the true and faithful Son of God who could rightfully say about himself, I am the what of the world? The light of the world. In and through Jesus, the faithful Son, all the nations are now welcomed to come to God and be reconciled to him. How did this, this, this happen? Jesus, as the faithful Son of God incarnate, entered our captivity. Remember, we saw all of this during Christmas season. He entered our captivity to the law, and under the law, he died to redeem us from the curse of the law. He nailed our sins to the cross in his own body of flesh. He died as a man under a divine curse so that we could receive a divine blessing. But as we know, on the third day, something truly glorious happened. As the lifeless body of God's incarnate Son laid there inside that tomb, God spoke to death itself and simply said what God had told Pharaoh in Egypt. Let my Son go. At that exact moment, Jesus' sure captivity under the curse of sin ended, and he entered a new, resurrected, unending, and exalted life. He is what Israel was meant to be, but in a much, much glorious way. Israel was God's firstborn son, but Jesus is God's firstborn son from the what? The dead. And now, as the renewed and glorified man who went through death and into immortality, he has been given the authority to share that life with us. The Son of God, if you're following the notes, entered our earthly mode of existence as a man under the law so that we might share in his new mode of existence. Remember what he himself said in John chapter 10, verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they, they may have what? Life and have it abundantly. Jesus did what he did in order to share. But the question then is this. What is Christ's new mode of existence. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 45. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul explained Christ's new mode of existence after his death and resurrection, of course. Paul explained it like this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 45. Thus it is written, the first man, who would that be? Adam became a living being. The last Adam, meaning who? Jesus Christ, became a life-giving spirit. Christ's new mode of existence is as a spiritual man who is able to share his own spiritual, abundant, and eternal life with us. Let me repeat that. Christ's new mode of existence is as a spiritual man who is able to share his own spiritual, abundant, and eternal life with us. How is Jesus able to share this new, abundant, and eternal life with us in the here and now? 
We answered that two weeks ago. We said that before Christmas, we were humans living under God's rule. After Christmas, what are we? We are new creations living by the Spirit. We are new creations living by the Spirit. Remember, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And this is the point of our passage in Galatians. Having described the work of the Son of God in human flesh, in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, Paul now moves to give us a description of what life looks like for us after that work was done, which we see in verses 6 and 7. As I said before, one of the critical duties of the Christian is to learn to think of himself or herself in a new light. For in Christ Jesus, everything has changed. You, my Christian brother and sister, are currently sharing in Christ's new spiritual mode of existence. Yes, only partially, but truthfully. Only partially, but truthfully. Two weeks ago, I gave you two descriptors that accurately speak of who we are in Christ now that Christmas has come and gone. I said that living life after Christmas means, first, you must consider yourself what? Adopted by God. Adopted by God. We are sons and daughters, members of the same family. Therefore, we should strive for greater unity. That should always be our goal. We belong to the same family. God is our Father. We should strive for greater unity. Next, we saw that living life after Christmas means you must consider yourself united to Christ. United to Christ. The Spirit of Jesus has been sent into our hearts, which means that Jesus has forever bound himself to us. Jesus has forever bound himself to us. The Holy Spirit is Christ with us and in us both as a present reality and an eternal guarantee. Therefore, we should strive for greater holiness. For as Paul said in Galatians 2.20, who lives in us? Christ himself, who now lives in us. But we're not done yet. We have more texts to consider. There are at least three more gifts from the risen Jesus to us as he shares his heavenly spiritual life with us earthly people. And here's the third one, which comes out of the second one. Life after Christmas means you must consider yourself welcomed into fellowship. Welcomed into fellowship. Verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. God did not adopt us as sons and daughters in order to give us some benefits while keeping himself at a distance from us. No, brothers and sisters, God adopted us in order to give us the full benefits of sonship. Now, we see this captured in that little expression at the end of verse 6. Abba, Father. Now, defining that expression is not an easy task for two main reasons. First, the expression, Abba, Father, was very rare 
in Jewish prayers during that time. So there's not a lot of contextual help from that time. The second reason is that the Bible, in the Bible itself, Abba Father only appears a handful of times, which adds to the difficulty of defining what Paul means. So to navigate this difficulty, let's begin by considering the word Abba itself. What does the word Abba mean? It is the Aramaic word for father, for father. So Abba, father, is basically a form of repetition. It is almost like saying, father, my father. From this, here's the first lesson. We learn that Abba, father, indicates first intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. To be able to say Abba, father, is to claim closeness or proximity with God. Now, please consider with me the shock that this would have been in the first century. In ancient times, most people believed that the deities stood far, very, very far from them. They were never close. In fact, it took a lot of sacrificing to attempt any degree of closeness with the deities. But this is not the case with the one True God. He, unlike the false gods, invites us to intimacy. My Christian friend, what does that mean? It means that you are never, ever alone. You are never, ever alone. Because of the Holy Spirit, God is always near. God is always near. But intimacy, as wonderful as that is, is not the only meaning of Ava Father. The three biblical occurrences of this expression can shed more light on our quest for meaning. The first one to say, Abba, Father, in the biblical record was the Lord Jesus himself in the Garden of Gethsemane, just hours before his crucifixion, as we see it in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, as he contemplated his imminent death on the cross, here's what Jesus prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. What is the cup? Well, the cup was a reference to his imminent death. He knew he was about to drink that bitter, bitter cup. And that's the first mention of Abba Father in the biblical record by the Son of God incarnate himself. The second occurrence comes in our text in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. And notice who says it. If you read Galatians 4, 6, who is the one who says, Abba, Father? Can anybody tell me? It's not a trick question. It is the Holy Spirit. According to Paul in Galatians 4, 6, the Spirit is the one who cries, Abba, Father. The Spirit does the crying. Now, let me show you the third occurrence of this Expression. Go to Romans chapter 8, verse 15. Romans chapter 8, verse 15. I really want you to follow along in the logic in which the Bible presents the expression Abba, Father. Romans 8, 15. Paul writes to the Romans, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into what? Into fear. But you have received the spirit of Adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? 
Abba, Father. Did you hear who does the crying in Romans 8.15? We are the ones who do the crying. So there you have the three occurrences of Abba, Father in the Bible. First by Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, then by the Spirit in us, and finally by believers themselves. So what do we learn from this? Well, we could say by looking at these three that the expression Abba, Father, is also about, and this is shocking, participation in the Trinity. We have been invited to participate in the life of the Trinity. For how do we know this? Well, it is the Spirit of the Son, the one who leads us to cry what? Abba, Father. What the Son said in Gethsemane and what the Spirit cries out, we now do as well. Such is the fellowship we enjoy with God. Therefore, at this point, we now two things about Abba Father. It expresses intimacy with God and it is an invitation to participate in the life of the Trinity. But there is something more about Abba Father that merits our close attention. If you notice, both in Romans chapter 8, verse 15, and Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, the expression is accompanied by the word cry or crying. Remember also that the Lord's Prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was also a cry of deep sorrow. For he was contemplating his own death. In fact, in fact, Mark makes that explicit in Mark 14, verse 34. It was a cry of sorrow. Why is that significant? It is significant because it reveals that Abba Father is, number three, a longing for deliverance. It is a longing for deliverance. In a real sense, Abba Father is the cry of those who long for the world to come, where all wrongs will be right. It is a recognition that the suffering of the present is a path to future glory. To say, Abba, Father, is to acknowledge by the ministry of the Spirit within us that our lives, though currently being transformed, are not yet what they will be one day. To cry, Abba, Father, is to essentially say we long to enter the final and eternal state in which we will know God's fatherly love without the hindrance of sin and suffering. The Holy Spirit, in other words, is creating in us a longing for us to experience the fatherhood of God in all His glory. Like creation itself. What is creation doing right now? According to Paul in Romans 8, 19, creation itself groans for its own deliverance. So we too long for our consummated adoption as sons and daughters of God. What is that full consummation of adoption? We'll see that in our last point. For now, just think of it this way. As Christians, as Christians, we have a fellowship with God in the present that is actually stretching us into the future because our present fellowship with the Father comes many times surrounded by clouds of suffering. And we cry, Abba, Father, because the Spirit produces in us the longing for a suffering-free fellowship, which will one day be fully realized. But it is Jesus himself, the one who sets the pattern for us, doesn't he? When did he cry, Abba, Father? 
he did so as he contemplated the cross. And eventually, Jesus suffered and died upon that cross. But then, what did he do? He entered, having suffered, he entered into his rightful glory. We likewise experience many sufferings here. We can even agonize. But Jesus has sent his spirit into our hearts so that we might know that this present crying of our souls is not the end, that we are not stuck in a world of unending sufferings. There are crosses ahead, but one day we will have, listen to this, there are crosses ahead, but one day we will have our own empty tomb because of our union with Christ. We cry, Abba, Father, today, because we know that one day it will all be made right. All your prayer requests for physical health will one day completely be answered. The Abba, Father, cry is anticipatory, expectant. It is longing. The Abba, Father, cry is then as if the Spirit himself is pushing us forward from here into eternity, reminding us that we are in between sufferings and glory. The Abba Father cry is the Spirit filling us with a constant and growing invitation to sense the weight of that which is to come. Or let me be even more specific. Because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the cry of Jesus in Gethsemane has become our cry in our own sorrows of the present life. We can say Abba Father because our crosses of this life will one day give way to glory just like the cross of Jesus gave way to his own glory. Because of the Son of God, and because he said, Abba, Father, as a man in the Garden of Gethsemane, we can now say it as God's adopted children as well. We have full fellowship with God, and not even our sufferings, that's the point, not even our sufferings can separate us from our fellowship. Let me be as bold as to say this, if you're following the notes. Here's a bold statement that only Christians can make. Because of the Spirit in us, Because of the Spirit in us, our sufferings are not an interruption to our fellowship with God, but an intensifier of it. Because it is often in our deepest sufferings that the Abba Father cry becomes the loudest within us. Because of the Spirit in us, our sufferings are not an interruption to our fellowship with God, but an intensifier of it, because it is often in our deepest sufferings that the Abba Father cry becomes the loudest within us. The the Son's own Abba Father cry of intimacy, participation, and longing is now ours. In and by the Holy Spirit, we have entered Christ's own life. Let us strive then for greater confidence. Greater confidence. This Abba Father cry of intimacy, participation, and longing is a call for confidence in the God who has welcomed us into such fellowship. Hebrews 4.16 gives us the perfect conclusion to this. If we put Galatians 4.6 and Hebrews 4.16 together, it would sound like this. God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The Son cried, Abba, Father. The Spirit cries, Abba, Father. And now we cry, Abba, Father, whether to enjoy our intimacy with the Father or to rejoice in our participation with the triune God or to express our longing for what's to come as we suffer, we can do so with confidence. Nothing can nor should keep you from crying, Abba, Father. Even your sufferings are a reminder, painful as they may be, that God is calling you to himself and that one day all things will be made right. Number two, consider yourself free from condemnation. Consider yourself free from condemnation. Paul continues and says, so you are no longer a what? A slave, but a son. As we have seen already, the idea of slavery is a critical one in the Bible because at the heart of what God does is to rescue people from their captivity. Hence the words of Jesus, if the son sets you what? Free, implying what? That apart from him, we're not free. Therefore, to understand oneself as being no longer a slave is of critical importance. After all, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I already spoke of our captivity to the law during my Christmas Eve sermon in greater length, so I'll give you a brief summary today. How did the law create captivity? The law created captivity by emphasizing ethnic distinction between Jew and Gentile, by magnifying human sin in all of us, by demanding our death under its righteous demands, and by sealing our separation from God. But Jesus brought an end to our captivity. He redeemed those who were under the law, as verse 5 says. How did he do that? He ended our captivity by creating unity among men, by nailing our sins to the cross, by crossing through death and into eternal life, and by leading people back to the Father, we are now sons and daughters, but let us be a bit more specific at this point. Remember that our freedom has something to do with the Spirit, as Paul says in Galatians 4. Think of the Exodus once again. Israel went from the land of captivity into the land of freedom, away from their captors and toward God. But because of Christ, we underwent an even greater change. We went from living, in your notes, we went from living under the law, we went from living under the law as sinful human beings in Adam, to living by the Spirit as new creations in Christ. And what does the Bible say? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? There is freedom. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Freedom. In other words, whatever the Spirit is, that's the true land of the free. Wherever the Spirit is, that's the true land of the free. This means we no longer live in the fear of condemnation with God's law looming large over us, but we live in the freedom of adoption with the Spirit of Jesus dwelling deep within us. Brothers and sisters, this is our new life in Christ. We are children of God. Let us therefore strive for greater gratitude. Let us strive for greater 
gratitude. In your adoption, you have been given everything. I heard a pastor say that you can tell the difference between a prideful person and a humble person by one main thing. The prideful person is known for voicing complaints. The humble person is known for giving thanks. What is your life characterized by? Complaining or gratitude? In 2024, let us grow in gratitude for we are among those who have been set free to live as adopted children of God. And finally, number three, consider yourself, and you're going to like this one, consider yourself destined for glory. Consider yourself destined for glory. Look at how verse 7 ends. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God, or an heir through what God has done. So if you're following along the notes, consider this. If we are sons of God through Jesus, then we are entitled to the son's inheritance. That's pretty pretty big, if you ask me. If we are sons of God through Jesus, then we are entitled to the son's inheritance. What is that inheritance? Let me put it this way. What does Jesus deserve for his work as the incarnate man, the faithful son, the one who died for our sins? Let me take you back to our Christmas Eve sermon to see if we can begin to tie all of this together. I concluded that sermon by saying that Jesus came to retell the story of Israel. For Jesus came as the faithful Son of God in and through whom all humans can now be reconciled to God. So he came to fulfill the role that Israel failed to fulfill. Now please allow me to work out the massive implications of saying that. And in the meantime, do this for me. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 2. But don't stop listening. (laughs) Okay? You have to do both at the same time. So what are the implications of the fact that Jesus came to retell the story of Israel as the faithful son? Well, think about this. If Jesus is the new Israel, the faithful son, in whom all the promises are yes and amen, as Paul says, then Jesus is the rightful heir to the promised land. Can you think of anybody else who has greater rights to the promised land than Jesus? Please say no. But there is a difference, isn't there? There's a difference. The land to which Jesus now has the right to possess is a bit larger than the one promised to Israel in the Old Testament. So in your notes, here's a question. What is Christ's heritage? Well, Psalm chapter 2, verse 8, gives us the clear answer. Through the pen of the psalmist, and in prophetic language, the Father says to the Son, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your what? Your heritage. And the ends of the earth 
your possession. I don't know about you, but that sounds bigger than just a few acres, doesn't it? So what is Christ's heritage? The whole world. The whole world. As one theologian said, because of the work of Jesus and the sending of the Spirit, quote, the whole world is now God's promised land. God's holy land. How can that be? How can that be? Well, just think about it with me. Is there a corner of this earth to which the Holy Spirit of Jesus cannot enter? Is there a heart of this humanity within which the Holy Spirit cannot dwell? All of it now belongs rightfully to the Lord Jesus. Moreover, what does the Spirit do in us and through us? He sanctifies, doesn't he? He sanctifies. He makes holy. Or we could say it like this. The Spirit of Jesus spreads the life of Jesus in the world as the disciples of Jesus are filled with more and more of his Spirit. But it doesn't end there. I said that the destination matters always. Where is all of this headed? Well, it's headed here. Jesus will one day inherit a perfect world. A perfect, remade, renewed creation. One day, there will be no more enemies, no more adversaries, and no more opposition to Christ and his rule. All evil, all sin, all death will be fully and finally eradicated. But here's the good part. That world, the Bible says, will be our world as well. In other words, our final destination is this. A world in which our partial adoption will be fully realized. Now before we get there, before we get to that final renewed world, and should the Lord tarry, we will all have to go through death. Our souls will be safe and secure in the hands of our Lord. We will be absent with the body, but present with the Lord. Our bodies will take their normal course and decompose. They will return to dust. But because of the incarnation of the Son of God, His sympathizing love, at the appointed time, our adoption as sons and daughters of God will be fully consummated. Well then, what does that full consummation of our adoption look like? In the words of Paul in Romans 8, 23, it looks like this. The redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. So, what is the glory to which we are destined? What is the glory to which we are destined? The glory is this. We will receive new bodies made fit for an eternity with Jesus. We will receive new bodies made fit for an eternity with Jesus. That my brothers and sisters, is our inheritance in Christ. That is what he deserves. 
And because of our union with Christ through the Spirit, that is what we will receive. So let us strive for greater hope. I've been slowly working my way through Augustine's famous, The City of God. And when I say slowly, I mean really, really slow. In that book, this giant of the church wrote the following, quote, Of this, at least, I am certain, Augustine said, that no one has ever died who was not destined to die sometime, end quote. He said it in the context of suffering Christians who had lost much at the hands of Roman cruelty. But we all die, said Augustine. We're all destined to die sometime. But then Augustine goes on to explain the Christian hope, which is far greater than the finality of death itself. For Christians, Augustine said, have the promise that, quote, the flesh itself shall be restored, and the body formed anew, all the members of it being gathered not only from the earth, but from the most secret recesses of any other of the elements in which the dead bodies of men have laid hid, end quote. Not a single molecule. Not a single molecule will be lost when that day comes. But we shall all be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Now the Apostle Peter, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle John stand in the passage of Scripture as standards for what this new resurrected life looks like in the here and now. For they were humans who underwent a transformation. The apostles are the first picture of what it means to be a new creation by the Spirit and to live like it. Chief among these is the Apostle Paul, whose life was so changed that he went from being willing to kill to being willing to be killed for the sake of love. So as we return to our study of Acts next week, that is what we will see. We will see a man transformed, a man who lived in the present in light of the future. And I hope that you will join us. In the meantime, let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you once again for this reminder, imperfect as it is, that we are indeed a new creation in Christ. Help us to know what that means. By the power of the Spirit, continue to make us like Christ, restoring in us the image of God from glory to glory. And we do join the Apostle John who said, come Lord Jesus, come soon. We pray in his name. Amen.